Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of December 2nd, 2019. On the show today, news, listener questions, and in our main segment, Jim tells us what's going on with the Snow White's Scary Adventure refurbishment in Disneyland. Before we do all that, let's bring in the man whose doctor said he has amnesia, and when he asked if it was contagious, the doctor replied, is what contagious? It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? I'm here all week, folks. Uh, tip your waitresses. <laughs> I love that. I, I, straight out of the Borscht Belt. Great joke. Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, David S., Dennis M., and CA4121. I think that's actually a family name, Jim. And longtime subscribers, Leah H., Michael M., and Sanders. True story, Jim. These folks built the sand-based snowmen in the holiday overlay you can see at Living with the Land this December. Other materials that worked included quinoa and cassava. However, I'm told that hydroponic tomatoes were the stuff of nightmares. But it may be back for Halloween, so... <laughs> Christmas snowman out of tomatoes, Jim. <laughs> Christmas snowman out of tomatoes. <laughs> well, you know, the weird thing is that there's been that big storm out west that's actually chugging toward us here in the east, even as we speak. And somebody took the opportunity <laughs> out of the storm to do some Calvin and Hobbes-like snowmen. Oh, the Calvin and Hobbes snowmen comics are fantastic. Just for the uh, the twisted imagination of, uh, of Bill Waterford. Yeah, and just the ones they built featured tomato-like spurts of blood, and it's just sort of like, yeah, you're going to be really popular in the cul-de-sac with snowmen like that. So. <laughs> you clearly do not belong to a homeowners association, sir there we go. or ma'am. <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, Jim, speaking of Bandcamp subscribers, before we get started on today's show, uh, I want to give our subscribers a quick update on our next set of Bandcamp exclusive shows. Uh, folks, Jim and I have been digging through the Buddy Baker Music Archives at New York University, and so far we've found nine songs uh, that have never been released for Disney theme park attractions that were never built. We found uh, three songs for Mark Davis's Enchanted Snow Palace attraction in Disneyland, three songs for the unbuilt Africa Pavilion at Epcot, two songs for the original concept of Universe of Energy at Epcot, and one previously unknown version of the original concept song for the USA Pavilion at Epcot. So we've hired musicians and singers to perform and record the songs, and those are done, and they sound great, really amazing things. Uh, we've also recorded four new shows where Jim talks about the history of these attractions while we weave in the music to move the story forward. The one problem we're having is this. Uh, Disney Music Publishing has so far declined our requests for music licenses for the songs, and because, for legal reasons, uh, these songs have never been released, so there's no fair use exemption or compulsory licensing for some of them. So we're temporarily stuck. Thanks for your patience while we work through this. The worst case scenario is that we can release the shows without the music, but we're hopeful that Disney will come around to see things our way and we'll keep you all updated. So uh, either way, I think we'll have them out by the end of the year. He's hoping. I just, I love that you went into the archive, you found this stuff and it's so much great info associated with these kids. Can't wait to get these shows out the door. And the songs sound really good. I mean, Aaron Aaron produced some of them. Uh, he found musicians to sing them. We tried to make them in the spirit of 1970s Disney music, which I don't know if you if, if you saw the notes where I had to convey that, Jim, to the singers. <laughs> <laughs> like something like John Denver, but maybe or maybe or not with, uh, with him high while he's singing this, you know, about plants. Wow. Uh, see what you can do. <laughs> 
<laughs> you nailed it. <laughs> that's wow. I think that was actually that, <laughs> that's the vibe. That's that's the exact vibe. John Denver. For, now John Denver. There high. we go. Okay. <laughs> we missed our calling, Jim. We missed our there calling. <laughs> if this becomes a Broadway show. <laughs> All right, Jim, let's, uh, let's do the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. Jim, two new uh, Disney patents uh, showed up on Thanksgiving Day. Shout out to the people at the USPTO for working holidays. Both of them are related to, I think, the Star Wars Hotel that's coming up. One of them is titled, and I'm not making this up, Cylindrical Interface for Augmented Reality Virtual Reality Devices. And it sort of looks like this. Imagine you're in the Living Seas Pavilion. You know they've got that tube mm-hmm. that divers go up and down mm-hmm. to ent- enter the, the aquarium proper. Imagine that sort of size tube, but not filled with water and divers, but instead inside showing a virtual reality thing, right? Whether it's a a movie scene or a person talking to you or whatever, but using that cylinder as the interface to display things during a, uh, during a virtual reality game. Mm-hmm. To me, that sounds Star Wars-ish. Mm-hmm. The second one, and I think this is definitely more Star Wars-ish. Mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, sorry, the, the images for that cylindrical interface uh, patent definitely show it uh, working in a, a room with furniture. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I'm not supposing you're going to, they're expecting you to inst- install one of these things. <laughs> In your living room, right? So I'm thinking this is the hotel, okay. right? Do you remember Commander Bog from Captain EO, the Dick Sean character who, you know, in the middle of the, the, like the oh right, yeah, you yeah. Know, how he's talking to Michael Jackson's uh, captain. Picture that, because remember, you know, the whole Star Wars aesthetic is the used future, the slightly old, frazzled technology. But still cutting edge. So this is sort of the kind of devices they'd use to set the story in motion, as in there's somebody who wants to meet you down in the bar or that you need to go over to oh, Batu and find this character and so on and so forth. So Speaking of that, the, uh, the next patent is an update on the one titled Location-Based Mobile Storytelling Using Beacons. Mm-hmm. And again, the idea with this one is that you're walking through rooms and as you go through the rooms, something tells you parts about the story to progress the narrative as you go through it. And I think this one is almost certainly related to the to the Star Wars hotel. Although it doesn't have to be, right? I mean, mobile storytelling using beacons can be anywhere. It can be used in a theme park. We do have in the next 15 months or so the Play Pavilion going live at Epcot. Ah, so, yeah. you know. I, I imagine some of this will be tested then, There right? you go. There you go. Jim, let's do uh, listener questions. Uh, and we'll actually segue into this one because it's related to new technology. So our BFF Karen writes in with a technology-focused survey from the Disney Cruise Line. And she writes, Hi, Lynn and Jim. A few days after returning from a Mexican Riviera cruise, we got a Disney survey request. But it wasn't about our cruise. It was almost entirely about the media we use and how we consume content. There were a few questions about which devices we took on board the ship and whether we purchased a Wi-Fi plan. But it also went on to questions about which devices we have at home, including smart home types, which streaming services we had, and whether or not we were cord cutters, and other things like that. The one question that stumped us was, at what age did we think a child should own their own cell phone? There were a few questions about charging devices, 
did I use my own or use a swap program like at, at the parks? It asked if I was comfortable using my phone to purchase very expensive items in thousands of dollars. It also asked whether I thought I should have to pay for Wi-Fi or whether it should be complimentary. Most of the devices it asked about were items I'd heard of, but there were a few I had not. Unless they're going to start making hardware for smart homes, like alarms and cameras. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what they're thinking there. In any case, it was the most unusual and longest Disney survey I've ever done to date. Thanks so much for the Disney dish. Love it. So, Jim, some of these questions, mm-hmm. right, about how media and how we uh, we use content, you can see how that works mm-hmm. sort of with the cruise line, right? How do you, how do you want to consume content on a cruise? Wi-Fi, you can see how that sort of fits in with it, right? Because if you're consuming content and it's not content that Disney has on board, you'll be using Wi-Fi for that, right? I agree. I agree. Actually, the, the of the questions, the one that intrigues me the most is about, you know, at what age should a child own its own cell phone? I mm-hmm. was talking with somebody at Imagineering about that, and it seems the Disneyland Resort is different than Walt Disney World. Oh, sure. Evidently, in California, everybody has a phone. You come out of the womb, they hand you a phone. I would say that it's implanted in utero for the first one. Yeah. yeah. On the other hand, if you think about, you know, how many people from the Midwest and, and thereabouts uh, come down to, to Walt Disney World and that sort of thing, there seems to be a gap between who actually, at what age folks have cell phones and are vacationing at Walt Disney World versus Disneyland. And frankly, from the Imagineers' point of view, this kind of this internal debate to the effect of, well, all right, so to, at what age or for what age group are we designing these in-park experiences? If you think about the stuff they've already done previously, the Perry the Platypus. Right, AGP's World Showcase Adventure. Likewise, Kim Possible. I mean, you have kids of a relatively young age, you know, walking around the park using phones to have these interactive adventures. And they want to be doing the next set of these. But it's it's the whole notion of, okay, if we're going to do this, you know, we and we're putting a lot of time and money and effort into these things, which characters are we zeroing in on? Which IP? And again, which age group are we primarily aiming at? Especially for Asian P's, the World Circus Adventure, you've, you've hit up on the point, and that's this. If everybody in the family doesn't have their own cell phone, then the experience is much less compelling mm-hmm. for those people without the cell phones. So even if you're a parent, right, and you're, uh, you, you hand, if you've got two parents and you've got two kids and you, you hand your cell phones to the kids so they can play the game while you're in Epcot, mm-hmm. the parents don't get to participate, and so it's going to be much less compelling for them. This is true. This is true. I think that's part of the challenge. Like, it, it, So really the question is, is, what's the minimum age that everyone in your family has a cell phone? Because then they can do cell phone experiences. Okay. This all makes sense. They're three and four years out about implementation and all of these conversations about which of the Disney Channel shows or what's on Disney Springs you know, are we going to be basing these experiences on? And we're also a couple of years out from the ships too, right? So if they're this going to I- include any sort of custom hardware in there, especially hardware that requires communicating with the internet on a ship, they're going to need to have that locked down you know, like in the next couple of days, really. Because right, if you've got like, imagine you have an Alexa type of device in your stateroom cabin on the Disney Cruise Line. You're going to need the internet in order for that thing to function. Makes right? sense. Yep. But if, if that's the case, then people are going to be using more internet, hence the question about whether you're willing to pay for it. Totally makes sense now. So we got our name of the new ship back in August. We got The Wish. This is the one that enters the fleet in 2022. 
22, right. So it's uh, it's going to be delivered in 2021. First booking is in 2022. This is the Triton class. Okay, so, and that's ship. the first right. of three, right? So we're only two years out from delivery, three years out from this thing going yeah. into the fleet. And no, two years. It'll be in the. It'll it'll be delivered in yeah. Tw- it'll be delivered in two yeah. years. A, a year and change now. Yeah, first. The first itinerary should be like early, 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 early in 2022, like January, February mm-hmm. is what I'm hearing. So we're basically two years away from first cruise. We should start seeing the first itineraries early next year. I'm always fascinated about how these things are timed. The notion that they're making technological decisions at this point. How would you like to be the IT guy on the ship? Basically, you're going to put wired internet connections and wireless everywhere and then hope that you can swap out devices. Yeah. That's really what it's going to okay. be. Okay. All right, Jim. Uh, next question is from our pal Ryan, who writes in to say, uh, when you and Jim uh, said Marvel isn't at the void in Disney Springs, could that be because of the Marvel licensing issue? Great point, Ryan. Jim, what do you think? I think he's nailed it. If you think about that master licensing agreement, then you start to get down into the codicils. There are literally, you can build this sort of attraction 50 miles away from Universal Island Adventure. You can have this sort of attraction 100 miles away. And I bet... Probably Disney's lawyers are like, uh, you know, guess we'd love to have it. <laughs> it's cheaper not to build it than to get there to it. There you go. So. <laughs> also, uh, Ryan writes, uh, Kevin from Up is actually she. Her handlers were correcting people when we last saw her. Good point, Ryan. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad we didn't have to take uh, her to the restroom. That would have been <laughs> awkward. Yes. Our good buddy Steven writes in with a question about the upcoming Space 220 restaurant at Epcot. He writes, do you think the Space 220 restaurant will be a signature restaurant? I'm wondering if dinner here will eat up two of my dining plan at table service credits. I ask because although it sounds theme parky, the level of staff they're looking for seems high end. Jim, have you heard anything about this? Yeah, um, I think his uh, concern about being a signature restaurant is not wrong. It's going to be at the very least, you know, during its introductory period, the focus is on this amazing atmosphere and this amazing dining experience. And again, remember, that's yeah. why, you know, Disney continues its search for, you know, an A-list chef to sort of drive the menu. Here. Executive chef, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I would anticipate burning through two of your your credits for the, when you, if you do this on the dining plan, folks. I, I think so too. And I think so for, uh, for uh, three reasons. One, the promos mention an extensive wine list. And I think every restaurant with an extensive wine list is a signature restaurant. Two, any restaurant with a very special location also mm-hmm. has uh, is a signature restaurant. So if you think of like uh, Cinderell, uh, Cinderella's Castle with the uh, Royal Table, if you think of Akershus at Epcot, uh, if you think of um, any of the other uh, signature restaurants like around the, the mm-hmm. parks, they've all got some sort of uh, key location. Uh, so it's, it's either one of those two things. And then third, the fact that they're looking for a high-end executive chef yeah. is sort of like the tiebreaker as to whether it will be a table service or not. I'll be I'll be surprised if it's not a signature restaurant just because of where it's at too. You're literally supposed to be leaving the planet and having this amazing view and just be sure to tuck your wallet into your space before you go. Exactly. All right, Jim, uh, a friend of the show, Terry, sent in a set of survey questions he got after attending one of the after-hours events at Disney's Animal mm-hmm. Kingdom. And Jim, this is one of the longest surveys I've ever seen. So I'm going to summarize it. Okay. The survey started off asking whether you're you know, 18 years of age or older, uh, what time you got to the Animal Kingdom for the After Hours event, and then your motivation for uh, the After Hours event. Like, why did you visit? And the, the choices there were, 
Uh, I visited because of the after hours theme of the party, including the free ice cream. <laughs> I visited. Hey, Jim, you, you want to know what motivates people? You got to ask about. Okay. Okay. I visited because I wanted to attend a special event in Animal Kingdom, regardless of theme. And I visited so I could ride popular attractions with minimal wait mm-hmm. times. So Disney's really trying to figure out why people wanted to uh, to visit there. It asked a couple of questions about demographics. Mm-hmm. It asked about uh, how you learned about after hours events. Asked what you liked about it. It asked about asked you to rate the value for what you paid, where you reside, things like that. What time you came, what time you left. Uh, there's one that asks. If you had to do your day over again, how likely would you be to purchase this after hours offering? Definitely, probably might, probably would not, and definitely would not. So this is interesting because I've never seen this kind of question asked before. Typically, they ask you a question like, would you recommend this to a friend, right? But this is a new twist on that. It's if you had, to day your, if you had your day to do over again, would you do this? And I haven't seen that phrased before. Have you? No, no. And... and- out ahead of the 50th anniversary, which is going to feature quite a few of these after-hour type events. The fact that Disney sort of kicking the tires of, did you get what you expected? Did, did, did Was it a good value? Without actually saying that, if you had to do it again, if you, you know, and remember, the, the tickets for these after-hours things are fairly pricey. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, $130-ish. Yeah. Dollars. And they, I think they want to know that because if you do one, let's say you mm-hmm. do one at the Animal Kingdom and like it, yep. you're more likely to do one at Magic Kingdom or there Studios, mm-hmm. right? So uh, not only that, but you will you could do the same thing when you come back. So if these events work, not only will you do that more times during your trip, you'll do it more times on successive trips mm-hmm. as well. By the way, Jim, did you see it that uh, I believe there are two days in January coming up, uh, January of 2020, where the Magic Kingdom has early morning magic, regular park hours, and then an after hours event on the same day. Jeez. <laughs> you had said, remember, you, you said this years ago that Disney was trying to sell the same park multiple times in a day. And in mm. January, they achieved the trifecta at mm-hmm. least twice. Wow. And you got to feel for custodial more the, the point. <laughs> you got 20 minutes. <laughs> Go clean. <laughs> yeah. And think about the poor people who work in the shops who have to do the restock out ahead of this just so yeah. – you can maximize the opportunity. All right. Oh, by the way, though, the, 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 just we, we should give get a, a quick tip of the hat here to uh, when they were asking, where did you first learn about Disney after hours? Did you note here that in addition to official Disney sites or that sort of thing, they, they went unofficial sites like WDW Magic and AllEars.com and WaltDisneyInfo.com. So, I did see uh, it. I did. We yeah. never get listed there. I can't, I can't believe it. Although we're... <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, they, than some of them, but that's fine. I, they have our pictures backstage. Like one of them. That's it. Yeah, there's, a, there's a reason why. Like uh, they're also promoting my uh, my favorite uh, last two questions, Jim, are, mm-hmm. are this. One was if Disney after hours had not been occurring, would you have still mm-hmm. visited a Walt Disney World theme park on the same day? And the answers are mm-hmm. yes or no. Okay. And then my all time favorite answer from Terry is this: mm-hmm. If you had not attended after hours, what would you have been doing instead? And the answers to this, visiting a Disney theme park, mm-hmm. visiting Disney Springs, dining at a Disney restaurant, visiting another area theme park, Universal Orlando SeaWorld or Busch Gardens, uh, shopping at a non-Disney location, relaxing at my accommodations or at home, some other activity, or I don't know. And Terry picked visiting another area theme park like Universal or SeaWorld, <laughs> which means even if it doesn't work out for Disney, the fact mm-hmm. that they're going to keep money away from a competitor 
means it's more likely they're going to keep doing after hours event. I think we should all answer that question exactly that way. There we go. Good for you, Terry. <laughs> yeah, good for you. Exactly so. the way I would have answered it. <laughs> That's fantastic. Good job, Terry. Thanks for sending those in. Reminder, folks, if you guys get uh, surveys from Disney, please take screenshots of them and send them to us. Uh, sometimes they uh, contain really interesting questions. We'd love to go through them on the show. All right, we're going to take a quick commercial break. And when we come back, Jim, you're going to tell us all about the upcoming changes to Snow White's Scary Adventures in Disneyland's Fantasyland. We'll be right back. All right, Jim, we know that Snow White's Scary Adventures in Disneyland is getting a makeover. The current ride, as you know, is kind of foreboding. Mm-hmm. The beginning of the queue has a dungeon scene with chains and gargoyles. There are vultures in one part of the ride. Even the dwarf's cottage isn't particularly bright or welcoming. And about half the ride involves the scary witch and a run through a dark forest. Plus, the last show scene is the witch trying to smush the dwarves with a giant rock. It is not exactly the most uplifting of Fantasyland rides. Right, Jim? Oh, no. No, no. In fact, I I think the thing that has always made me crazy is... When I'm out there and and I just said, okay, it's been a while. I haven't done Snow White Scary Adventures. <laughs> and as an adult, I love the window opens and the the queen glowering down at us, and then the, the the curtain closes. But then when you enter the actual queue, and one of the very first things you experience is the dungeon with that skeleton sort of reaching out. Yeah, there's chains. Yeah, there's a skeleton. And let me say, it's well themed. Everything looks good. And it's on model from the 37 film. I can't fault any of that. The yeah. downside is any parent with a small child that reaches that point in the kid. And again, you've walked the kid up to an attraction that actually has the word scary in it. No, it'll be fine. It's Disney scary. It'll be fine. How many times have you literally had to step out of the way in that queue? Because some parent is carrying a frightened child out because they made it as far as the skeleton is like, oh, no, not doing this. Okay. And Plus, did you did you notice that the skeleton is on the ground at, at child eye level? It's not like up. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. You know, just, again, if, if Disney wants to kick in with the therapy later in life, that's very nice of them to do. But yeah, this is supposedly finally addressing these sorts of things. And don't get me wrong. You know, the, for those of you who remember the uh, Snow White Scary's Adventures uh, that, that was at, at Disney World, that opened in 71. And in 94, they actually did something very similar to this. They shut the attraction down for, I want to say, you know, uh, close to five months, six months. It, no, excuse me. It was only two months. They closed October 21st, 1994. And when it reopened on December 16th, they had done the same thing. They had, first of all, put Snow White in her own attraction. That's an idea that went all the way back to 55, Len. You know, the notion mm-hmm. was that when you rode this ride, you were Snow White, and guests never quite got that, so they put Snow White in the ride to show her. In-house, actually, the, the attraction was known as Snow White and the Seven Witches, because that's how many witches jump out at you. Yeah, like I said, it's a, it's a scary ride. It's a scary ride. You've got to give Disney credit, though. Uh, for 1955, mm-hmm. coming up with a ride whose concept or whose conceit is mm-hmm. that you're Snow White yeah. is kind of groundbreaking, right? Mm-hmm. I can't think of another amusement park ride from that era that had that sort of idea where you're the you're the protagonist of the ride. There's the one film that Walt himself allowed to be shot in Disneyland. Uh, this was a, a Universal Pictures movie, by the way, hmm. uh, called 40 Pounds of Trouble, Tony Curtis movie. 
there's actually a scene in the movie where the, the, the little girl, that, that's the 40 pounds of trouble, they're riding through Snow White. And you can actually get a sense of how the ride was in the late 50s, early 60s. And it really, at this point, Len, it's almost just above carnival-level quality. Uh, really? It's not terribly sophisticated, and the witches and that sort of stuff are, aren't really on model. When it opened at Disneyland in 55, it was just known as Snow White and Her Adventures. And it was only after a number of irate parents, you know, went down to City Hall and complained that they, all right, can we go back and actually insert the word scary? So people, you know, it's like, look, you went into the attraction. It said scary. Why are you coming down here and complaining that your child was frightened? We, we told you. The other thing, frankly, about this update, it's not really all that big a surprise. I mean, we saw Alice in Wonderland go down in 2013, 2014 for an extensive rehab. Uh, that's when it came back with all the projection effects and that outside railing. We saw in February of 2015, Peter Pan flight went down and same thing. They upgraded a lot of the effects and, you know, that reopened on July of that year. And just this past year, we watched the, uh, the Project Stardust where they, they, they moved the queue for both Dumbo and Small World to supposedly help with the crowds for folks who were coming for Galaxy's Edge. So it really is kind of Snow White's time. You know, it was, it was the next one in the list, so to speak. But this update, the one with the queue we were just talking about with the skeleton, uh, this was done for the new Fantasyland project that was done in 82 to 83. That was largely because after Tomorrowland got Space Mountain and after Frontierland got Big Thunder, Fantasyland really started to look out of date, really started to look kind of chintzy. In this same window of time, Disney's in the process of building brand new versions of the Disneyland Fantasy Rides for Tokyo Disneyland, which is going to be opening in April of 83. So it's like, well, come on, guys. It's relatively cost effective, you know, when we're building new versions of these rides for Tokyo to just be, you know, make a second set and then to click a lot of the same elements into. Sure. You know, in fact, that's, that's one of the reasons why, uh, as part of this rebuild, Disneyland in Anaheim got the Pinocchio's Daring Journey attraction. That was the one new ride that they promised Tokyo. And it's like, well, hell, we're building one. Let's build two. But anyway, we talked about how a lot of the sort of the example for this is based on what was done in 94 for Snow White's Scary Adventure in, in Disney World. But Snow White is just as problematic for Disney as, say, The Crows and Dumbo and, well, virtually all of Song of the South is. I mean, I know that Snow White is the film that started Disney on the whole animated feature path, but she's a really passive character. Yeah. I mean, not terribly bright. You know, the whole notion, Crone shows up at your door, it's like, oh, honey, you know, here's a wishing apple. <laughs> and it's like... <laughs> Why did you eat this? You know, you, you pointed out, and, and, and it's true that she's passive. And I'd like to point out that from Snow White's perspective, mm. the evil queen did everything that she was promised. She she said, to take a bite of the apple. The next mm. thing Snow White knows, she's waking up, her friends are dancing, and she's being kissed <laughs> by a prince. Remind, remind <laughs> me to tell you about how, how my, my theory that Ursula is the most realized of, of Disney villains, and she's probably not actually a villain. I have a whole thesis on this. Wow. <laughs> 
Okay. <laughs> That's misunderstood. Man, there you she go. Just, if she's a man, she would just be titled uh, an aggressive businessman. There we go. Uh, anyway. But she is. She's passive, right? I mean, other than attracting forest animals, what qualities does Snow White have? Well, you know, and it's so funny you, you mentioned the forest animals because when you read the description of this update, they actually talk about how – when the attraction ends now, the attraction will conclude when Snow White is reunited with her animal friends and a shimmering castle is seen in the distance. Notice how they never use the word dwarves. I know. Evidently, you know, sometime over the last 10 or 15 years, Disney has gotten squeamish about the using the word dwarf. And, you know, evidently, you know, that, what is it, uh, little people, big world, you know, just, I I remember having this conversation at one point, the effective, oh, maybe we really, you know, and and then it's like, the fact that the dwarves have these really demeaning names like Dopey, in fact, that that supposedly factored into how they decided they were using Dopey in the Seven Dwarfs Mine Train attraction, that it was like, they deliberately, the managers deliberately made decisions that Dopey couldn't be seen doing something stupid. So the two times you see him in the attraction, you, you get that thing where he's you know, in the cart using the diamonds as the eyes and is like, well, look, that's clever. You know, he's put on the, you know, he's put on the diamonds. He's not he's really got- dopey. It's just the name. Yeah. And then so, at the at the end, you and had then, him. And Grumpy, Grumpy's just got some sort, uh, <laughs> some sort of chemical imbalance. I mean, just there a couple of Xanax and he's fine. There's, there's this great story about the Dwarves trilogy that uh, Walt Disney Home Entertainment had in the works, where they were literally first, it was first the blood cl- part one, first what, blood uh, part two. I no, <laughs> you, you, you are not wrong. You know, in fact, <laughs> that I remember being upstairs in the Frank Wells building and being taken into the pod where they were working on the Dwarves movie, and they literally had the centerpiece piece of art for, that they used to sell this project was. Do you remember the end of the first Conan movie where it's Arnold Schwarzenegger is the grizzled version? Of of Conan sort of sitting slouched yeah. in in his you know and they alluded to there are other stories but we will tell them at other times and it's like yeah. there in the middle of the beat board for this project it, it did is a picture of Grumpy in the exact same Conan pose I mean he's he's on a throne and there's this whole elaborate backstory about how each of the dwarves are kings of their own world and that they come together to battle the evil. Qu- I, th- this is all a, a real thing, Len. I, I swear to God. <laughs> so Dopey, Dopey's telling you that the greatest pleasure in life is to vanquish your enemies and chase them before you. <laughs> Rob them of the wealth. Hear the lamentation of their women. <laughs> there, there, there we go. Of course. Wouldn't that look great in a t-shirt? <laughs> the, the merchandising possibilities are endless. Mm, but when Shanghai Disneyland opens in, in 2016, yeah. Um, you know, when they do the seven dwarves and it, they, they have that once upon a time walk through up upstairs in the Enchanted yep. Storybook Castle, because hand drawn is actually seen as, is, you know, it, it supposedly doesn't appeal to modern Chinese theme park visitors. So sure. they, they redid the dwarves. They redid Snow White in, in CG. It just fascinates me that going forward, this proven popular ride system, the seven dwarves mine train. When it goes to Hong Kong, it's it's going as an entirely different IP. That's being put into the frozen area, and that's that's going to be called what? Wandering Oaken Sliding Slays. Yeah. Just because, again, it's just sort of like, do you want to tie it to Snow White? It's like, no, I don't really want to. 
as Disney is doing this update and, you know, fixing the Disneyland version, they're looking to do with Snow White what they've just done with Cinderella and the Jungle Book and Lion King. And they're looking to shoot a live action version of Snow White. But Snow White. But here's the thing. It's from her sister's point of view. Are, are, are you familiar that Snow White had a sister called Rose Red? Uh, uh, vaguely? Okay. Okay. So this is from the Brothers Grimm, and Snow White is still going to be a little passive. But on the other hand, the fact that they've been talking with Brie Larson to play oh, Rose Red, yeah. anticipate at some point the, the evil queen, when she comes out with an apple, is going to get punched in the throat. <laughs> Yeah, she'll, she'll, she'll have more character though, right? So you think this... And I guess the thing that make you know, I'm, I'm kind of hoping is that with Disney Plus now offer, offering... Just going to ask it, yeah, about Disney Plus. Yeah, yeah the, there are so many opportunities to do projects that Disney didn't necessarily think were commercially viable, but you know, that you got a subscription base and diehard Disney fans, you could do the different things. There's two other earlier attempts at doing sort of an update at Snow White. One was literally supposed to be the film that followed The Black Hole in 79. It was called Snow Star. Snow White in Space? Please. It's Snow Please White and the Seven Droids. No. Serious. The idea was that you had sort of a Princess Leia character who had upset her stepmother. And so she ends up, she seals the spaceship, she blasts off into the depths of space, it malfunctions, and she lands at what basically is an abandoned mining platform. And the only thing that's left on the, the thing are these seven droids who come to life because, the, the, you know, a ship has landed on the platform and they become her protectors. Jim, first, I, you're you're talking about this. I'm already writing up the GoFundMe page for our, our Broadway musical of this. <laughs> Can you imagine the possibilities? They had another one that Len was just as attempting. In fact, again, from 2002 to 2005, this was a project that was actively in development at Disney. It was called Snow in the Seven. And the idea was that you now shift the Snow White story to its China during the uh, the Tong Wars, you know, so it's like 1890, 1900, you have an English school teacher who goes over who offends a female warlord. And so she's targeted for assassination. So she races off into the bamboo forest and f then finds shelter in a Shaolin dojo. And so it's <sighs> seven Kung Fu monks who now become her protectors. And this got so far along they signed the the gentleman who did all of the fight choreography for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. He was going to direct oh, yeah. this movie. Could you imagine this as like an Akira Kurosawa? No, that's it exactly. Like Seven Samurai, but the Seven Samurai are dwarves. Okay. Yes, that's basically, so, that's basically uh, it. The seven, yeah. the seven Samurai are seven dwarves. Yeah. Wow. So, so no, no, no. I mean, it just the script, the boards for this. This is all it's sitting in a file yeah, somewhere at Disney. Uh, same thing with with Snowstar. And I get Disney is so concerned about female characters being seen as powerful. I mean, it, it, I, have you seen any of the stories just over the past week about how in Frozen 2 there was this. The wearing pants. That's it exactly. Months and months <laughs> oh of effort. Like, <laughs> people, people put a lot of thoughts into this. Wow. Yeah. So we may get our Snow White story, but by way of Brie Larson and her kick ass sister, Rose Red. That sounds fantastic to me, actually. Sounds great. 
I don't think that'll impact the Disneyland redo, but, but you know, who knows? Maybe, you know, if you look in the background and mid, you know, right there with her you know, her new animal friends as the attraction ends, they'll, they'll be, Brie Larson will be in the background force choking the, you know, the evil queen. <laughs> Sorry, the evil queen. <laughs> that's fantastic. Who can, who, we're hoping, Jim, we're hoping. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. On next week's show, we'll review The Rise of the Resistance Ride at Disney's Hollywood Studios. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who's building the world's longest extension cord for his parade float in the Electric Christmas Parade in the Holiday Homecoming Festival in St. Charles, Illinois. Please go onto iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.